Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I'm privileged to have Nate Warfield in the studio today. Nate's Chief Technology Officer for Prevalium. We've had some nice conversations leading up to this, and here is just a really amazing person that I think you're going to enjoy some time with. So as always, um, please make sure that you follow us, and uh, if you don't follow us on LinkedIn, do so. But uh, otherwise, Nate, hey, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. So you've done a ton of stuff in your background. I guess I could probably spend about half of the show talking about your background, but I'll let you do it because you probably won't take quite as much time. But uh, one of the things I found fascinating is your background, you know, going from technical and then on to ultimately as a CTO. But tell me a little bit about, about where you came from and what you're doing. Sure. So, yeah. So like you said, I'm the chief technology officer for Prevalion, which is a Houston-based InfoSec startup. We specialize in providing threat intelligence to well, right now, insurance companies and supply chain, people are, that are worried about their supply chains and third-party risk. Before that, I spent about seven years at Microsoft. So I, the, last, the last bit of my employment there, I was working for the Defender ATP team as a senior researcher. Prior to that, I had worked for the Microsoft Security Response Center, pushing out patches on Patch Tuesday. And uh, last year in March, I was one of the four gentlemen who started the CTI League, uh, which was a pro bono group of just InfoSec volunteers donating their time and their skills to help provide threat intelligence to try and get ahead of the ransomware attacks that were happening on hospitals and healthcare networks. And that's actually where I met my boss, uh, Kareem Ajazi, and kind of what led me to where I am today. Yeah, I remember you telling me that uh, you, you set up the CTI League. Well, first of all, tell me about that, because anything that's pro bono that's out there to help people, everybody really needs to know about that. Sure. So, I mean, really what we did is started last year, like I said, in March. I'd actually been on Twitter. I'd just gotten back from a conference out in Tel Aviv where I'd spoken about uh, using tools like Shodan and Gray Noise to sort of do your own perimeter assessments and, and looking for, you know, easy, easy holes in your network with, you know, fairly open source intelligence tools. So fast forward to March, and I saw an article about a, a Czech hospital that had been ransomware, and it kind of struck me. And so I started digging around in Shodan, and I ended up finding actually the, the medical facility that I personally use out here in Washington State had a couple of uh, Citrix Netscaler devices that were vulnerable to the whatever the, the CVE that it came out in December of last year, 2019, that got a bunch of Netscalers hacked. So kind of started figuring out how am I going to how am I going to notify these people and I put something out on Twitter saying you know we should we as infosec pros should be trying to help our our you know our colleagues in the healthcare industry and this gentleman Ohad Zeidenberg who I'd met in Israel he reached out on Twitter and said hey would you like to help me start this group I said yes we basically kind of went went from there and then my friend Mark Rogers and another colleague Chris Mills joined we put out notices to a lot of the trust groups that us, that a, a few of us were in and it sort of just it sort of grew organically and a lot faster than we thought it would. Within, like I said, within a month we had over a thousand people. We had people from the U.S. CISA. We had uh, Health and Homeland or Health and Human Services. Who else? Did we have FBI. We had Interpol, Europol, a whole bunch of different local law enforcement groups, uh, and then we had some of the ISAC or the ISAC groups uh, here in the U.S. from the healthcare and medical industry that helped. They're helped sort of our, our liaisons to the hospitals. One of the things we learned 
that she was a little surprising was when you try to give stuff away for free to a healthcare network or a hospital administrator, a lot of times they don't believe that you have best intentions. So, you know, a random stranger sending an email to a, you know, an IT team in a hospital saying, we found some vulnerable devices on your network. You would think that might go over well. Um, it turns out that it was much more efficient for us to just work with groups that they already trusted and sort of get the message to them. Yeah, either that or just uh, send them a bill. <laughs> well, the idea was try to do it for free, right? Oh, we, yeah, of course. We, wanted, we, wanted, we figured what we kind of realized was that, you know, the private sector has all this. We have, you know, a lot of money. You know, you look at all the, all the private companies that have all this, all this budget for InfoSec versus a hospital has got to balance the budget of, you know, InfoSec along with, you know, the life-saving equipment like, you know, CAT scanners or MRI machines or, you know, any of the other technology they have to purchase. So, you know, we, we accept that a lot of these places, the, you know, the InfoSec stuff sort of falls to the wayside and they, they choose the equipment that is actually going to save lives. Um, of course, in this day and age, one could argue that a ransomware attack against that equipment could cost lives. So. Yeah, and I think there's been some actually uh, ransomware cases where there have been statements made to say this cost somebody's life, either because the system was down and therefore an individual was unable to go ahead and get the medical care, had to be transported a distance to another facility and didn't make it, or the other. But you know, it's interesting that uh, you're seeing that. So really what you're focusing on then with the medical sector and the life-saving organizations, or the MS-LSO. I hadn't heard of that acronym before, but I learned that from you. And it's a really honorable thing to do, I think, because as we look at, you know, here we are you know, kind of in a COVID going forward, uh, still kind of, sort of, but not quite out of the woods yet. And you don't know if a second or third or fourth shoe is going to drop on this. But in general, healthcare organizations, I found it interesting that you say they've got this dichotomy between save the patient or save the data. And you've actually kind of stepped in there and said, hey, we can help you with that. Which I, you know, so how, how were you able to find your first traction in that area? Because as you said, they would kind of look at you and go, yeah, right. Yeah, what we did, I mean, I mean, really, what it it started, I mean, it started rather simply with basically a list of about 300 hospitals that had vulnerable like network devices, and actually that was that was sort of the daunting part, right? I think with my local hospital, I found somebody on LinkedIn who I wasn't actually connected to, so I, I tried to send him a connection message and put in the IP addresses of his devices and say, hey, I'm you know I'm an infosec professional, I'm trying to help you out. You have a couple vulnerable systems. And I really quickly realized that, you know, that wasn't going to scale. And honestly, the, the way we got the most traction was by having ISAC partners and by having the U.S. government, um, different government groups in there. We found some stuff that was that we, we were able to very quickly hand off to law enforcement, some like active attacks that were going on that the law enforcement could go and take down. And then we had, you know, multiple members from the ISACs who were active pretty much pretty much. We just about had people there almost 24 hours a day that we could, you know, we would have different teams. Since the group was global, we'd have different teams that would be working on different things. I had a guy in, out in Germany who was really good, like, who would be running things, another guy in France that would be running things. Like, sort of while the U.S. was asleep, they'd be processing a whole bunch of intelligence, and we'd get back, you know, we'd get back online in the, you know, morning time in the United States, and there'd be a whole bunch of information that was waiting to be just handed off to hospitals or to the networks of people that actually can, can reach out to them. Well, that's really cool. So you're a global volunteer emergency response center, and you're providing these services for what might have been initially a reluctant, but then later on, hopefully an appreciative 
uh, customer base. But of course, one almost kind of wonders in the back of your mind, if you've got this many people, how do you make sure you don't get uh, like a ransomware operator kind of infiltrating your mitts and going, blah, ha, look what I can do here? Yeah, that's a great question. We actually, what we ended up doing um, initially, like I said, we started off by using like, so myself and Mark are both members of a few fairly, fairly um, deep trust groups. So these are groups where you have to have be invited by someone in the group, usually vetted or, or have a one or two members of the group that says, yes, I know this person personally, you know, they're, they're trustworthy. So we, we managed to somewhat short circuit the risk that way. As we got bigger and once they launched a website and put up like an invitation form, then we actually ended up having, I had a team of, I think, four, up to four people at a time that were working on just doing vetting and sort of essentially like digital background checks, right? We would get people that would, you know, we'd ask for, hey, you know, where do you work? You know, it, it was easier to allow people in that came from big company emails, right? If you have someone that comes from an at Microsoft.com email, for example, that's pretty easy to say, okay, this is a legit human being. Um, if you had people that are coming from Gmail or, you know, live.com or these anonymized emails, um, those required more work. Um, so we actually did catch a couple, the, the team did ended up catching, they weren't ransomware operators, but they looked to be some sort of scammers or um, basically they, they did some deep investigations, found these guys had had uh, multiple LinkedIn profiles, and then they found their social media profiles and realized that they were participating in all sorts of hate speech. So we just, uh, we were very um, uh, indiscriminate. We would, as soon as we found something negative on somebody, we'd boot them. We wouldn't, we wouldn't even take the risk. So that's good. So you, you basically then have a curated list of experts, volunteers, pretty much from around the world. So they're available 24 by seven. As this got going back in March of 2020, and then you started to really get going, did you run out of steam at some point? Did people say, yeah, I'm getting tired of this. This is too much work. Or do you kind of get depressing? Oh, man, it's more than I thought. Or does it able to keep on rolling? I mean, to be honest, uh, you know, speaking only for myself, it was actually the closest I came to burning out in my career because I was working, you know, a full-time job at Microsoft. You know, I'm a father. I have two small children. And then, you know, I'd get the kids to bed and then I'd be up until, you know, two, three, sometimes four o'clock in the morning working on, you know, league business, so to speak. So after doing that for about 30-something days without even taking really weekends, actually somebody in the league, so I kind of, they kind of put me in check and said, hey, you're, you're burning out. Like, I haven't seen you not online in over a month. Um, but over time, I mean, the thing that was interesting is we had, we had a lot of momentum. We, had a, we were able to do a lot of good sort of the, not even, I, I jokingly say it's not low-hanging fruit. It's like fruit that's on the ground already that's rotting some of the stuff we were finding. Um, if you go to about probably about the six to eight month, eight month in was when we started noticing that there was, you know, we could see we were running this all in Slack. So we could see kind of a, a downtick in how much messages people We definitely saw the, the effects of COVID and like isolation and the quarantine and just the sort of strain that it was putting on people's mental health. And, um, so yeah, the, the group is definitely still around. Um, I haven't, I, I've kind of taken a bit of a step back from day to day management just because working for a startup and having two kids is priority right now. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine that. We'll talk a little bit about that startup in a little bit, but let me kind of wrap up a little bit here. So I, I was looking at the website for the CTI-league.com for those who want information on it. You got four main goals. Reduce the level of threat to the community, the medical and uh, life-saving by preventing cyber attacks. Number two, neutralize cyber threats looking to harm those organizations and exploit the COVID pandemic. 
Number three, support law enforcement organizations in their fight against threats that are a danger to public safety. And I thought number four was rather interesting. Create a disinformation resilience of the MSLSO, which is the medical sector and life-saving organizations. What's your, tell me a little bit about creating a disinformation resilience. So that started up last year. Um, it was it was interesting. We, we like we I said we started with the sort of network attack surface thing, and then we had a bunch of two members that had joined that their forte was actually disinformation and misinformation research and understanding how these campaigns work, the way they sort of weaponize social media and you know and sort of the the actual fake news websites, not the ones that we hear the politicians calling fake news, but the stuff that's legitimately. You know, like say like RT, for example, what they did was they, they came in and they, they we basically set them up their own Slack channel and they were focusing on a lot of the sort of the disinformation that was going around about, you know, the vaccine safety, um, the mask safety. You know, we I mean, if you look back in 2020, there was all sorts of lot dis- disinformation coming out around COVID. Right. There was, you know. You know, does drinking bleach help you get rid of or stay safe from COVID? Does, you know, does the vaccines have 5G chips in it? Is it Bill Gates' mind control plan? Like there was all this sort of, you know, we as logical InfoSec practitioners can kind of look at it and we, we kind of laugh, you know, sort of that the dark humor of like who would actually believe any of this stuff. But then you look around the world and you realize, you know, people are protesting, people are, you know, are, are you know, threatening violence towards healthcare workers because they think that, the you know, this isn't actually the, the, the COVID, you know, it's not an actual disease or it's only the flu or it was created in China in a laboratory or, you know, even still today, here it is, you know, 2021's almost done. We've got three legitimate vaccines and large swaths of the United States refuse to take it because they don't believe that the vaccine is actually safe or that it works, right? This is, that was part of it. And then as we were working with the U.S. government a little bit, the, the conversation came on to, do we want to dabble in election security, right, or the election disinformation because, you know, 2020 being an election year? The group was pretty adamant about not. We, we, we looked at the sense of because we brought in people from around the world, because we had sort of taken this sort of good and neutral and good stance, right? We're going to defend, everybody can agree that a hospital and a healthcare-like provider is something that is good for the world. We said, you know, if we start getting political, there's we're never going to have we're always going to have somebody who disagrees. There's always going to be somebody that says, hey, I, I don't agree with what you're doing. So we just kind of we took a step back and said, look, you know, keep doing it for the medical stuff. Keep doing it for the vaccine stuff. But let's just stay away from politics. And I think that's it's probably wise just kind of stay and pick a lane and stay in it. And it's a lot safer that way, because, yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, I th- and for anybody doing an undertaking, when you realize just there's so many things you can do, you can dilute your ability to make a difference by trying to go after basically tilt at all the windmills instead of just one or two of them. <laughs> yeah. But uh, as a result, you'll be able to do stuff. And of course, it's 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 pretty interesting. And I see a little posting there that uh, you made this year's Wired 25, people who are making things better. So congratulations on yeah. that. Yeah, no, that was pretty fun. We did, we definitely we, did, we got into Wired. We got to do a panel with uh, Dr. Fauci back in, I think it was September of 2020. Mm-hmm. Very, very brief, but it was it was kind of cool just to be, you know, recognized for doing something good. <laughs> yeah, 80-year-old rock star. Of yeah. course, you know, one of my, my favorite uh, rock stars, so to speak, uh, just went into space this past week, uh, Bill oh. Shatner at the age of 90. 
And I was thinking he's probably just doing that to just kind of poke George Takei in the eye. And I just reading something today that says, yeah, they still have a 50 year old feud going on between the two of them. I think that's why Shatner refuses to die. He said, I got to outlive everybody else that was on that cast. Anyway, good for him. Hey, um, now we're talking about uh, medical organizations and the fact that they're being targeted. Now, I go think back a couple of years to MedStar Health. I did a talk on anti-ransomware at ShmooCon a couple of years back with a friend of mine, Gal Sponsor, and we used MedStar Health as an example where they're fairly local and they had been hit with ransomware. And it seemed that the rate went up once the opportunistic attackers realized what they had. It wasn't just some, some grandmother on a pension. It was an American medical organization that apparently... I shouldn't have said their American medical organization. Oh yeah, now it's 50 Bitcoin instead of five. But I have attackers kind of realized that this is a, a place where they got to pay because they got to get back up or is it not as simple as that? What's the psychology now in the medical organizations and life-saving with regard to ransomware? And you know, do you pay it or do you just gut it out or do you ideally prevent it from ever taking root in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, right? I, I can... For all the work that we did uh, with medical organizations, I actually only have one, there's only one individual I can remember that was working for a hospital that was active in the group. And I don't, I don't, one of the, the internal laws of CTI leagues, we don't name any of our members. Mm-hmm. But the thing that was really tricky is we, because of the sort of lawsuit prone way that America runs, found that hospitals generally didn't want to even admit that they'd gotten help from us. And it wasn't, I don't think that they were being malicious. Uh, I think it was more that they, by admitting that a group of people that were doing this stuff in their spare time was able to find something that maybe their paid staff wasn't. I feel like there's probably, probably at some point their lawyers are like, this isn't a good look. We should just sort of quietly, you know, quietly thank them and take it. So I say that because how they address the ransomware threat, of course, obviously we know prevention is the best, which is not realistic to think of that as a, you know, that's not going to work in most situations. If someone's motivated, they're going to get in. I don't, I feel like the ransomware gangs, they definitely did take advantage of the situation. You know, you, you mentioned talking about it at ShmooCon a couple years back, and then it's accelerated pace. They just, the, you know, they're criminals. They, they understand that, you know, if you go and you, you know, say in the middle of a pandemic, you ransomware at McDonald's, right? It's probably not as interesting. You know, they're a big company. They have a lot of money. But, you know, how many people were going to go and eat out when, you know, everything is closed down for quarantine versus the hospitals are overflowing with COVID patients? They they have this sick sense of, of being able to understand where they need to go to make the money that they want to make. So, unfortunately, with hospitals, they seem to be the, the, the things that I've seen, at least in the news and, and what I've been privy to, paying the ransom just seems to be the thing they have to do, right? They're, they don't have, they may not have the luxury of, you know, being a privately held software company where they can say, okay, we'll just restore from backups and, you know, we're going to take a, a hit on our release schedule and maybe Wall Street might get kind of annoyed with, you know, the delay or our customers are going to get annoyed with the delay for the next version or whatever it is. But for a hospital, you know, they've got, you know, not only the equipment that they use, but I'm, I've come to understand there's systems that are computerized systems that actually 
make sure you don't accidentally get, you aren't given uh, conflicting medications that could kill you, right? Some drugs have interactions with other drugs. So they, nowadays, everything is programmed into a computer and it'll say, hey, you know, this person's on this medication. They cannot have this other medication for whatever condition because these two things could cause a fatal reaction. Well, you take that away and now you expect, you know, that human being, one, all these medical records are in a computer system. So all of a sudden they're sort of blind. You know, this person could have been in the hospital for two weeks getting, you know, whatever medication or whatever treatment, you ransomware the system with the records in it, and it's like the person just showed up, right? They're, they're, we've become so reliant, and hospitals, you know, have become so reliant on the efficiency that computing gives them that they just can't, they can't not pay the ransom. They have to get back up quickly. Yeah, and, and from that perspective, then, it's a little bit frustrating, because I remember years ago, I don't remember the circumstances, and maybe it was even apocryphal about somebody who had stolen a laptop and it had all kinds of defense secrets on it. And they're like, okay, fine. Then the next day it showed back up again with a little notice as I'm a thief, not a traitor. And uh, so it suggested that there are some people that say, yeah, I got a little bit of conscience on it, but it sounds like this is sort of non-conscience oriented activity. Hey, we're just criminals. Or if we really cared about this, we, we get haircuts, commute, go to work, pay our taxes. And that's not really exciting. And so as a result, it means that we're probably still going to be at risk for some inordinate period of time until, I mean, what's going to change? Is there any sea change out there? Is something that represents sort of the end of a horizon of this? It says, hey, it's going to get better at some point, or is it just going to be how long can we survive and keep doing this? Yeah, I'm real fun at dinner parties. I don't think that it's going to change. I don't, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. What's, what's interesting is we've seen over the last, you know, 18 months, where you know the, these ransomware groups were going after hospitals, they did a con, like a coordinated campaign against them last fall, and then we start seeing things like you know the solar winds hack and the colonial pipeline hack and the meat processing plant down in Brazil, and recently we had a couple you know grain collectives here in the United States. The attackers seem to have this mentality. I, I think a couple of groups have actually come out and said, "Oh, we're not going to target hospitals. We're not going to target healthcare networks." Do we believe them? I don't think so. But really, the hard part is that these groups are they're smart, right? They understand they operate from countries that are, don't have extradition policies with the United States. They understand that attribution is very tricky, right? So they, you know, maybe they write their malware and they say, okay, don't infect a Russian, Russian, Russian language or any sort of Russian country's computer language set. But there's nothing that says these couldn't be, say, North Korean hackers putting that in there as a false flag to make themselves look like they're a Russian group when, in fact, they're North Korean. And they understand that because of the ability to mask their their actual locations and their actual identities, it makes it very hard for even the government at the government level to put any sort of like how do you how do you say maybe even with the the US government's recent thing kind of go after one of the crypto exchanges, that's the type of thing people could work around, right? And it's also it's not as as cut and dried as, you know, hey, we saw, you know, Iran trying to build more nukes, we're gonna put an embargo on the country when you don't really know where the attack comes from. You can't even necessarily go after the country. So the question is, is do you think that this ransomware, are we going to turn a corner at some point? Do we have an end in sight or is this going to go on for the foreseeable future? My opinion is that this is probably going to be going on for the foreseeable future. The ransomware games have figured out that this is a very lucrative business model. There's not a whole lot of there's not a lot of a way that the government or any of the private sector can even really stop this, right? Short of, say, shutting off all cryptocurrency, which we know isn't going to happen. You know, they, they figured out a very profitable model. And because of the difficulties there are in attribution, 
right? There's not even really something that the government can do at sort of the government level. Like we're used to say, you know, that, you know, we see the trade wars happening with China or we see, you know, Iran starts up their nuclear program and the government slaps more sanctions on them. When you're talking about an actor who could be in North Korea writing malware that pretends that, that sort of spoofs being a Russian actor, you don't really know where it's coming from. And it makes it very hard to actually take any direct action against them. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, this problem's been now going actively for a few years and nobody really seems to have the magic bullet, right? The antivirus and the EDR vendors say they can stop it. You know, we know that that's not 100% true. And, and even if it is, the real problem, especially here in the United States, is that a vast majority of medical uh, facilities are very small. They're local, they're regional. You know, they don't have a huge IT staff. I mean, they may only have like one person that's working there whose job it is is to, you know, manage their email server, manage their firewall server or their firewall. And then he's also crawling around, you know, underneath the desk to re resetting a computer or fixing a printer. You know, he's not the type or that, that person's not the type that's going to necessarily understand what a, a detailed threat intelligence report about his perimeter looks like or, you know, the importance of having offsite backups or these types of things. So it, I, I concur with you that I, although it's interesting, if you look at the history of ransomware, it goes all the way back, I think it was a, a paper that was written many years ago, long before this ever uh, came out. And I, and I had it in my old presentation. I'm not going to try to remember it off the top of my head. But one of the things I remember is that the author's recommendation was we should make asymmetric cryptography, make it off limits to bad guys. All right, and therefore it'll solve the problem. Well, no, that doesn't work. And then you can say, well, let's just make cryptocurrency off limit to bad guys. No, you can't do that. And now we're at the verge of creating some new Bitcoin ETFs and things such as that. Uh, Security Exchange Commission is at the verge of making some decisions. And so what we're going to do is potentially put things like cryptocurrency mainstream. Now, without getting into too much of the details of crypto, the point is, is that if you look at some of the perspectives on it. Some people say, well, crypto works because it's totally anonymous. And then the other perspective is, well, crypto works because it is totally accountable. You can track every single Satoshi that moves through the blockchain all the way from where it began to where it finally ends up. And so therefore, it works really well. Just kind of as a fun thing, a couple of years ago, I was advising a company. They said, yeah, we're getting ready to invest in this business to, to do blockchain analysis. Any questions we should ask them? I said, yeah, ask them, how do they go ahead and deal with mixers? And uh, they got back to me. They said, they said, yeah, we're working on that. I said, keep your wallet shut. Um, <laughs> but from, from that perspective, then, are we probably going to just simply see a particular cryptocurrency? Are they going to move to Monero? Is this outside of the scope of what you guys are looking at in terms of what the uh, trends are with respect to ransomware? Because I don't see them a lot in terms of trends from medical organizations. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the the news about ransomware against medical organizations has kind of petered out. I mean, I saw an article a couple of weeks ago um, about actually a lawsuit being filed against a U.S. hospital where um, you know a woman who I guess lost her lost her unborn child is is basically suing the hospital, saying that it's their fault because they were ransomware, and that kind of right there touches on you know there's there's a there's a fear of what can happen in the worst case scenario. So I feel like the um, without a, a clear solution without any real way to stop this. And with cryptocurrencies, like you mentioned, Monero, um, that's very popular, right? Even if they, most of these groups will get it in Bitcoin because, you know, I mean, here at Washington State and for all the others, I can go to an ATM and buy Bitcoin with a credit card. So it's, it's easy for people. That's the one everyone knows about. But as soon as they, they, Bitcoin we've known for years now is traceable, right? I mean, it's, 
now that it's become popular and there's, you know, like you said, blockchain analysis companies, they can figure out who, you know, where those those coins go. But Monero, you know, has long been a favorite both from the ransomware gangs for cash out for the, you know, anonymous crypto miners that get dropped onto, you know, on patched servers. I think even CoinHive used Monero. So it's it's unfortunately when, when coins like that exist and can be traded, then it, there's always going to be this problem of, you know, there's a way to cash it out without getting caught. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you had mentioned to me a little bit earlier that have been starting up uh, with this program where you've gone ahead and created the CTI League that you met your current boss. So how, how did that go and how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. So my boss, like I said, Kareem Ajazi is my, my current boss. And he had uh, founded a company, the company that I work for now, Prevalion, a few years back. And he joined, I honestly couldn't tell you who referred him in, but he joined the group back in the summer and he was basically giving away free access to the platform that his company, my company now, uh, built. And if you were in a hospital or healthcare network, he would, you know, he started off by coming in and saying, hey, you know, I'm seeing signals from, you know, these different hospitals. These are generally the precursors of some sort of ransomware attack. And so we were coordinating, getting his information to the ISAC groups to give it to the hospitals that were impacted. And then he sort of expanded the scope of what he was offering and said, hey, you know, we had we did have a very strict no sales uh, no sales pitch policy in the group where right? we didn't want people coming in trying to hawk their you know whatever tech stack. But he so he asked me directly. He's like, hey, can I just give away free access to anybody that's at a hospital to the platform? You know, and I was like, yeah, if you're just giving it away and it's no there's no uh, you know bait and switch sales thing. And so that was that was how I got to know him. He showed us. I was very interested in how he was able to see what he sees. So. You know, he gave me sort of a private demo of the platform, and I was very interested in it, but, you know, at the time, working for Microsoft. And then fast forward to the, I think it was February of this year, he reached out and said, hey, you know, do you want to come be my CTO? And, you know, it was no, no slight to Microsoft. I really loved the company and a lot of the work I did there, but it was just kind of, it was time for something different. And so I was like, yeah, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's see how this goes. So you had not been a C-level officer before. You're primarily technical and really good at it. Was that any uh, hesitation to say, hey, I want to go ahead and sit at the grown-ups table, so to speak, like <laughs> using an old Thanksgiving metaphor, or, or what do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the first things I told him was, you know, I've never been a C-level before, right? And his response was, well, that's actually kind of why I want you, is that you don't come with some of the, you know, the attitude or the ego that some of these other folks may have developed over the years. It's been interesting. It's it. Uh, most of my career, I was very not interested in having people like reported to me. I've since had people report to me, which is it's it's different. But a lot of what I what I've done, and you know, both the sort of visibility that we gained with CTI League and some of the visibility I had from doing my own research and talking about it at conferences, that was more. You know, there was sort of the the, the public facing role of, of being a CTO was really what the company needed. And I've been able to sort of learn a lot of the other stuff as, as I'm going, which is, it's fun. I like to learn on the fly and, and sort of jump in, you know, both feet into the deep end. Well, it sounds kind of exciting. So what, what have you found being different about being a C-level officer as compared to being a, a senior technical staff? What I've really, one of the things that I've found most satisfying is being able to build the culture of a company in the way that I want it to. I've worked for, you know, I've worked for, you know, a few a bunch of different companies in my career. I've worked for, you know, really amazing teams. I've worked for like incredibly toxic teams. And I like to think that I take some of that. I like to, take, I like to think actually I take all of the knowledge that I've accumulated over 20, 
three years, I think my career is at this point. And just basically say, this is what I, this is the stuff I don't like. This is the stuff I do like. And being able to, I've, I've hired a few folks and being able to just be very candid and transparent about, you know, what the corporate values are, what the culture is that we value and then keeping it that way. And it's really, we've actually got really good retention for, you know, startups in the current industry. People are bouncing around everywhere, but we managed to have really good retention. People seem genuinely happy and enjoying the work. And so I, I'm just, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been cool to be able to affect a change that I was never able to do, you know, at other companies where I was just, you know, sort of, an, uh, we call them ICs at Microsoft or individual contributors. Mm-hmm. Now, in doing a C-level role, one of the things that I found, and of course you've experienced it now, is you no longer are as close as to, to the technology as you used to be. How Have you found it hard to let go? And if you have found ways to let go, what advice could you give people who are kind of aspiring to move on in their careers as to how to avoid being caught in the middle between, I want to be tech, I want to be management, I want to be tech manager, tech manager, like whack, you end up hitting the barrier right in between. Yeah, it's been tricky. Honestly, I do. I do love being deeply technical. I've really enjoyed that my whole career. And I am, I am, I guess, a little bit lucky in the sense that where I'm at, the team that, that works up through me, my Intel team and my research team, I'm constantly talking to them. So I get to, you know, just, just sort of, I jokingly say through osmosis, they're keeping me smart. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I get to see the stuff they're working on. I work directly with our engineering team. So, Having a technical background, you know, even though I'm not necessarily getting to do this, the sort of deeply technical stuff every day, I try to just, I just literally try to find ways to stay like close to the tech, close to the actual work, and then balance that with, you know, the, the sort of spokesperson stuff that I have to do. But it, I feel like it keeps, uh, lends more credit and more, yeah, just more credit to the things I say when I'm, when I'm speaking publicly or when I'm talking about things of like, hey, he'd actually, you know, I'm not, I haven't gone through the, we jokingly, the, uh, the technical lobotomy that you get when you get promoted to a like C level. Yeah. I used to describe to people and you could tell me if I was on track or not. I said the biggest difference between a CIO and a CTO is the CIO keeps the trains running on time. The CTO gets you to an airport and into the next generation of technology. Is that a kind of a fair characterization? Yeah. From what I understand of the role of CIO, that's a pretty good one. I'm, you know, working with our engineering team to try to you know, we built a cool platform, but it's always the like, where do we go from here? How do we take the visibility that we've built and how do we, you know, turn that into more, you know, how, how do we provide more value to people? How do we provide better solutions that can actually help people get ahead of the, the ransomware threat? So, yeah, it's kind of fun. We jokingly have a lot of sort of staring into the crystal ball sessions to figure out where we're going next. Yeah, now... I, I took a look at the company that you're working at, Prevalian, and it looks like a very interesting business model about actually looking to do more than just a threat assessment, but actually trying to kind of get in there and figure out what's actually going on. And as CTO, of course, you're kind of on top of all that stuff. What's, what's really different about that? What's really cool and exciting about this technology that you're now working on? What's interesting, what, what really drew, like, drew, drew me to the company like I said, I come from a long background in network engineering, so that you know the way the networks work and DNS works is something very near and dear to me. And the interesting thing is that unlike a lot of these companies where they're saying, okay, we're doing you know perimeter scans or we're doing you know phishing tests or we're giving you a scorecard value of you know A plus or whatever the arbitrary math comes out to be, the way Prevalian is doing things is they're actually we're actually actively going and finding. Um, malicious command and control networks and infrastructure, and then working with partners, uh, internet registrar partners of ours, 
to commandeer this stuff. So we're, instead of sort of just observing and then reporting, we're actually taking more of an active role to try to both infiltrate it and then the way that we do it actually ends up killing that the usefulness of that specific command and control. So there is a degree of we're fixing the problem to a degree, but we're also getting invisibility into other people that may, you know, actual actual uh, like active malware infections coming out of networks that they may not know it, um, but we can see it coming out and attempting to reach back to the the original actor infrastructure. So it's I think I look to look at it as more of a taking the fight to the bad guys versus kind of sitting idly by and recording and you know documenting what happened. Yeah, I think that's a very important difference because a lot of times we'll say, well, wait till you get whacked and then we'll go ahead and we'll do a cleanup or we'll try to go ahead and do a damage assessment or we'll prepare your insurance claim. But what you're saying is that even before the attack materializes, there's some precursor activities that essentially are kind of a giveaway to what an attacker is up to. I mean, this is not, we're not talking about the casual drive-by send a whole bunch of malicious spam and hope somebody clicks on it. We're really talking about targeted systems here, right? Where there's groups that are going to go ahead and then follow the Lockheed Martin cyber kill chain. It's trademarked, I have to say Lockheed Martin, or otherwise I owe them a quarter. Going through their whole process here is compared to just kind of opportunistic. Would you, would you say that's probably a correct statement? And if so, you really can intervene in any of those seven uh, phases along the way. Uh, yeah. to go ahead and stop it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, so we try, the the thing that's tricky, and this is, you know, the ransomware, really the, the, the biggest threat that we're trying to go after, obviously, is ransomware. And the, the, the reason for that is it's it's more difficult if we if we break down attackers into sort of, as you say, the, the you know, the phishing or the drive-by links. They're sort of the, they're sort of the, the script kitty level of, of threat. You've got your sort of middle tier, which is your ransomware groups. And then, of course, you've got your top tier, which is your nation states, right? And your nation states generally will do sort of the bespoke, I call it the bespoke free range, fair trade C2 infrastructure, right? You're never going to catch this stuff because they're standing it up for one operation and one operation only. The middle grade guys, the ones that are using Iced ID and, you know, Quackbot and these other different, you know, sort of a shotgun approach where they're saying, okay, you know, we'll spray this stuff out or maybe they'll even target a specific business, but they, they've built you know, the malware C2 payloads that are going to fell at home, they're reusing the same code, they're maybe obfuscating it. Those are the ones that we're more effective at catching. And really, like you said, the problem is, is we want to sort of move that slider. I mean, I, I think of it sort of the, the slider bar on the kill chain. We're trying to shift it left, right? The sooner we can detect it before they even deploy the ransomware payload. One of the things that we saw, or I should say I saw when doing research at Microsoft was, you know, we'd see some of these ransomware families where, like I think it was Ryuk, you know, they would basically use, you know, group policies on domain controllers to stage the payload across the whole network. And then they could send one command and they all these binaries kick off at the same time. Like if you're waiting for that to happen, it's way too late, right? What you're trying to do is you're trying to get some sort of a signals intelligence when, you know, someone in accounting accidentally opens the wrong PDF, you know, their job is to open PDFs all day and process POs. When they open the one that drops a, you know, drops a C2 and makes a phone home, that's when you want to get signal, right? That's where you have, you know, maybe a few extra days or even weeks to get in there and figure out, you know, who's in the network, how far have they gotten. Once once it's escalated past that to the point where they're like staging payloads, you're you're pretty much out of time. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, here's a question that's probably impacting an awful lot of organizations over the last 
year, year and a half. Remote workers, has that made our perimeter harder to defend, easier to defend, or just different? And then you know, what, what are we seeing there? Because it's, you know, the whole idea, my thought is, if everybody's working remotely, we're, there goes your lateral movement, and that ought to really help out a lot, but maybe not. Well, so yeah, there is, there's kind of two opinions on that, right? Like you say, the lateral movement, maybe it's harder. You know, when I, like I know when I was at Microsoft, we had very, very nicely hardened laptops that we would take home. We would, you know, we had our VPN client, we had all that good stuff. The thing that, that keeps me a little concerned is that you're also at a, you're at your home network, right? And I mean, I don't know about most tech companies, but I can tell you at Microsoft, uh, you weren't allowed, you're not allowed to plug your Xbox in. Your kid's not allowed to plug in a smart TV into the network, right? You can't, you don't get to have a whole bunch of random, you know, $10 IoT cameras you bought off of Amazon that are plugged into the corporate network. The problem is, is that while, you know, the, the, the machine that your employee is using might be more hardened or it might be hardened, you don't know what's on the rest of their network. You don't know what software their kids might have downloaded or pirated or what happens. Like, there's all sorts of malfeasance that can go on in a home network that, you know, the end of the day may not really be that big of a deal, but, you know, if you find yourself in a situation where the right actor gets in there, you know, they may be able to say, okay, well, now they discover, oh, well, here's a machine that's got the, you know, the, the domain name of an actual valuable target. Let me see if I can get onto this guy's machine and then laterally move through his VPN into his corporate network. You know, so there's, there, it creates, I think, a more porous sort of perimeter. Although, you know, I've, I've said this for a couple of years now that this is going to be an issue, but I haven't yet heard of someone who's been breached that way. So maybe, you know, maybe attackers aren't listening to me or maybe I'm giving them more credit than they deserve. Or, or maybe we just hope they're not listening to our podcast, right? <laughs> right. Hey, whoa, I got the really good idea about how to attack from this <laughs> CISO Trade Crap podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's not a legacy I want. Well, yeah, so what we've got then is an ecosystem out there where you've been able to initially, you know, going from Microsoft, have an opportunity to go ahead and, and set up your CTI league. And based upon that and doing an awful lot of good, uh, or then identified, you know, Karim and saying, hey, wow, would you like to come work with me on this project? Now you're doing that as a CTO. You've made the jump, if you will, from the technical team to the management team. And from that perspective, you get to see things at a different level and you communicate at a different level as well, because uh, any speculations that you make uh, can also be viewed as almost directives. You know, my friends who made Admiral, I said, you know, one of the things they tell you is never wonder out loud. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, I wonder what this place would look like if the walls are green. Well, the next day you come back and they've been up all night long painting the walls green because, hey, the Admiral said he wanted the walls green and didn't really. He was just wondering out loud. Have you, have you seen any ways that uh, you're treated differently at that level by uh, the people you'd work with or because you'd gone to a startup, you didn't have the, uh, if you will, the promotion question where, hey, I've been working with my team and now I'm up here in the, the C-level office, but my coworkers are back there and there's a, and there's some sort of a communications gap. Has that never happened? I guess it probably didn't happen in your case. Yeah, it wasn't so, it didn't really happen. No, so just like you said, I, I switched companies. So it wasn't like I'd, I'd, you know, worked through the ranks of Microsoft up to CTO. So I was already coming into a situation where, you know, I was leaving my, all of my previous coworkers behind and gaining a new set of coworkers. So I didn't really see the, the change I did. I, like you said, the, you know, I wonder what this place looks like if the walls are green. 
I have had to be careful because there's been there's been a couple times where I will, you know, in a Slack channel, I'll be like, hey, what if, you know, what about this and that? And have we looked at this this way? And then, you know, I come to find out that, you know, either my, you know, one of my engineering guys or my Intel guys goes and has spent a, a bunch of hours running down something that I was like, I was just rhetorically asking the question. I wasn't asking you to go do it. So it's it's actually gotten me to be better with my communication and better at saying, hey, you know what, this is just an idea. Let's talk about it. I don't want anybody to go take action on it. So it's sort of heavy as the head that wears the crown, if you will. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think we we all kind of bump into that at some point in our careers, and then we kind of learn to be, okay, this is what needs to be done, and this is not needing to be done. We're just talking about it. Okay. Yeah. Now, an, another question, this is coming up uh, a lot now, is supply chain attacks. We've seen issues with regard to software and even software refreshes being attacked and then getting into there. Uh, what are your thoughts on being able to protect against a supply chain uh, being potentially the ransomware or something, a vector coming in from there and then getting loaded into everybody's customers and going there. Have you got thoughts on that as an attack vector? It's, I mean, it's a huge one, right? I mean, we, we all, I mean, everybody got really up in arms about solar winds, about Kaseya. But if you think back, it was only a few years ago that there was the CCleaner supply chain attack. I was at Microsoft when that one happened and we saw somebody took apart the malware. They were actually looking for like internal build networks like the malware when it ran would scan and see where it was and if it was on like a build network at microsoft i think cisco and a couple other tech giants it was looking for like it was just waiting to get on the right network before it phoned home and said it was there attackers are gonna i mean they're smart right they they are just as agile as any as any uh, you know private company they understand that you're not going to hack the microsoft or you know the, the facebook's or the amazon's you're not going to get them directly what you're going to do is you're going to go after, you know, the third-party companies that they start to rely on, right? We saw this with NotPetya. It was, you know, it was a payroll company that let, let, that helped that worm get out. We're seeing it here with supply chain attacks, and I think we're going to see more and more of this because it's it's continuing to be a viable tactic, right? They can, especially with a lot of these, there's all these different cloud companies that are starting up, and they're like, hey, we know we have cloud services for this and that and the other, you know, and companies may, you know, it the offering may be very valuable. It may help them, you know, be more agile or their, you know, businesses streamlined or, you know, throw in another buzzword. The problem is, is that when these companies are either not, they're having poor development practices or they're, you know, they're making all the same mistakes that we've seen being made for the last 20 years. And then, you know, like in this in the case of Kaseya, right, they have a bunch of big customers. They, if someone gets in, then now you've got the keys to the kingdom. Same with SolarWinds, right? I, I used that software decades ago. And I know the types of networks it gets installed in. It was a very, I don't want to give them more credit than they're due, but from the sort of putting my black hat on, that was a very elegant way to go about it. It was very effective. Yeah. So that's some really interesting stuff. And we're getting pretty much close to the end of our, our time window here. But I, Nate, this has really been neat stuff. Any last thoughts, ideas, anybody you'd like to you know, either shout out to or any ideas you'd like to leave everybody with? Well, I think what I guess really the stuff, I mean, I have a couple of things. One sort of the, on the professional level, I really think that we as the industry need to do a better job at collaborating. I've said this a bunch of times publicly. I feel like the bad guys are always a one step ahead of us. I don't think they spend nearly as much time on Twitter as the InfoSec community does, and maybe we should fix that. And then from like a different a personal side note, I really, you know, for anybody that's listening, check in on your friends, right? COVID in this last 18 months has been really rough on mental health. I know a lot of people that are personally that are struggling, that are suffering, just, just being in isolation. 
take the time, reach out to your, reach out to people that you know in your network to say, hey, how you doing? I haven't talked to you in a while. You never know when checking in is going to make the difference for someone, whether, you know, it's just, even if it's just that knowing that someone's out there caring about them, just, just don't forget about your friends while we're all locked in the house. Yeah, I think it's really, really good advice, and I thank you. Nate, I'm really looking forward to great things uh, from you going forward. Uh, Prevalian looks like a really interesting business, and with you there and your background, I think they're going to do great stuff. And so uh, best luck to you and best wishes. Thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show. And uh, this is G. Mark Hardy with CISO Tradecraft. Uh, Thanking everybody for being part of the show. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe and continue to go ahead and follow us on LinkedIn. And we'll look forward to connecting with you again next week. Until then, stay safe.